listener production. Tony Martin, thank you for surrendering to this uh, involuntary uh, interview. Happy to be here. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. Mr. Hanson, today we are interrogating someone who doesn't need an introduction. Tony Martin of the DGN, The Late Show, Martin Malloy, get this. Yeah, but Dom, Dom, no, you've just given him an introduction. No, I just listed a few of his classic projects. If I was introducing him, I would mention that in recent years he's created the award-winning podcast Childproof, Sizzle Town, that kind of thing, you know? You're doing it again. You're, doing it, you're introducing him again. Well, I might have mentioned his brilliant satirical novel, Deadly Kerfuffle. Dom, Dom, why, why are we even interrogating this man if you already literally know and have said every biographical detail there is to know about Tony Martin? Well, I am a huge fan, it's true, and that's why I had him seized and threatened with immigration offences because he's a New Zealander. You just wanted to meet Tony Martin, didn't you? Didn't you? That, that is an abuse of your power. I know, I'm really quite proud of myself. Yeah, congratulations. Good. Good use of the department power. Well, I wouldn't mind meeting Tony Martin too, or at least interrogating him, so let's bet. Now, Tony, we've abducted you today to get you to help us as a creative consultant. We got the idea from Kim Jong-il when he kidnapped that Japanese film director. Oh, yes. So uh, what am I advising you on? Podcasts. I mean, this is a podcast. You, your podcast, Sizzletown, just hit a million downloads, I'm informed, and we need a bit of that sizzle for extreme vetting, if you'd be so kind. Right. Well, my podcast is just me talking to myself mm. for half an hour. So it's, it's really the sound of someone having a mental breakdown. I think you mentioned last time it was just you under the covers with a Zoom recorder. So we might do that next time. Yeah, that's I do another one called Unplugged, which mm. is a sort of more low rent version, and it's me just <laughs> it's just me working around planes flying overhead <laughs> and yeah, hoping well, the cat doesn't interfere. We'll get to your film criticism a <laughs> yes. bit later, but let's go back to where it all started. And of course, you grew up in New Zealand. What was it like to grow up in a socialist utopia? <laughs> it was a very strange time because there was no comedy. We had, uh, well, we had Fred Dagg for a while. Oh, yeah. John Clark. And then he pissed off to Australia, leaving us really with just um, on the buses and Frank Spencer and British sitcoms. So that's all we had in the 70s, really. I wanted to ask you, actually, you just watched, I believe, the whole of On the Buses. <laughs> I did, um, yeah. Do you suggest we use it in the, uh, in the detention centres? It would be ideal because it has been torture. It's, has do it you, really? Do, are you people uh, old enough to know what On the Look, Buses is? I, I've heard of it, Tony. I've heard of this subversive literature, but I, I haven't sampled <laughs> it. So, but I'm interested to know, I mean, is it really terrible? It's, it's a very low-grade sitcom <laughs> from the, you know, you hear about classic British sitcoms and some of them like Porridge, like that one yeah. still works. Are you yeah. being served better or worse on the buses? 
Oh, it on the buses makes uh, are you being served look like the office? That's how poor it is, and it's just about these two sort of. I think the word in the day was randy, two randy bus men who sort of. That's what it's about. Yeah, they 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 one of them's the driver, one of them's the conductor of a double decker bus, and then there's the clippies who are the sort of female you know ticket takers, and they're just subjected to sexual harassment. Harassment for seven series, <laughs> and, uh, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so in, and, and in the yeah, in the minds of the. That's right, but occasionally, uh, for some reason, Swedish au pair girls happen to be <laughs> living in like yeah, the most bro. depressing. It's basically like a like a Ken Loach film, <laughs> but with like sort of busty blonde Swedish women occasionally turning up. It's very disturbing. Could we perhaps do, do a Melbourne remake on the trams on just the number ninety six or something? I just uh, every, I've been playing clips of it on my podcast and the clips I've been playing are the only ones you can play and even they are so kind of off. Oh, because it's literally literally unplayable now. It's just like, oh, here comes a top bird. She's a right little raver. There's just lots of pervy talk. So not nearly as witty as Benny Hill. No, Benny. It's like Benny Hill's like Noel Coward level compared to this. It sounds but, perfect for detention centres. I love it. <laughs> What's great? What I'm fascinated huh? by is how over the seven series the audience get less and less interested in it to the point where by the last series there'll be like seven minutes without a laugh from the studio audience, and you'll think, are they doing it? Is this like the first sitcom without a studio audience? And then suddenly there'll be a laugh, and you realise, oh, they've been there the whole time. <laughs> Crabbed into the back of the bus, probably. <laughs> That's right. It's the reverse of most sitcoms because most of them they they find their they find their feet after two or three yeah. seasons, don't they? And but what well, on the bus it just loses its wheels. It's it, just, after... it loses cast members. There's like you know the <laughs> oh main, really the even main... they lose interest. That's they right. The main jumps. character leaves halfway through the seventh series. <laughs> oh, the main wow. character halfway through. <laughs> so <laughs> you, go, you couldn't even make it till six more shows. <laughs> so this was the only comedy available to you growing up in New Zealand, which made you. Decide to pursue comedy. Why? Oh uh, well, there w- there was no live comedy, and but I liked radio uh, comedy. There was the Goon Show. Does anyone remember what the Goon Show yeah. was? And there was a thing called I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. And there was a guy yeah. called Kenny Everett who had a radio a thing called Captain Kremen. And I just went, that's what I want to do for a job. But because there was no live comedy in New Zealand, the way the way I got in was by doing amateur theatre. Oh wow! And so, so uh, I was in kind of run for your wife style British farces for for years. Did before. you play any butlers? Uh, no, I, the first play I was in, my character was called the Amusing Constable. <laughs> and that's he, the name of the really. That was in the play of Tom Jones, the the Henry Fielding Tom Jones, not Tom Jones. Did, from, did you feel pressure uh, then? I mean, if you're playing a character that's called the Amusing <laughs> Constable, you need to be amusing, not too funny. But I you need failed to, to amuse, as I remember. Did you? Ooh, oh dear! Uh, yeah, it was funny. shocking. It was well, shocking. We'll, we'll note that down. <laughs> we use um, at at uh, the AFP. We only use Wikipedia. Wikipedia is our source. We don't do oh, any yeah. more research than that. Okay. And I seem to recall a mention of you playing Man in Bad Suit in your Australian TV debut. Is that is that correct? That's my first role on Australian TV was Man in Bad Suit in an episode of The Gillies. Now, this sounds good, doesn't it? I'm saying The Gillies, and you think I'm going to say The Gillies Report. I do. <laughs> but I'm not. 
I'm, oh. I'm going to say the Gillies Republic, oh. which was the disastrous Greece two oh, yeah. of, of the Gillies. What, what universe. went wrong? What went wrong with the Gillies Republic? They fired all the writers. Okay, <laughs> I don't know if they fired them. They weren't available. So, oh well, that's Patrick Cook on the buses. <laughs> we're doing on the buses down under. <laughs> but no, there was uh, Patrick Cook and yeah. uh, John Clark had been like the Lennon-McCartney <clears> of the <throat> Gellies Report, and so <clears throat> they were gone, and now the George and Ringos were bumped up. Although uh, Don Watson was very funny. I thought yeah. he was who now is known as yeah. a prime ministerial biographer. But yeah. then there was all these people like um, Bob Ellis and sort was of he? like highfalutin playwrights who had never written a word of sketch comedy. So we had Stephen Sewell, who wrote oh. The Boys. Oh, yes, he's, he's, he's very good at intense psychodrama. He was <laughs> perfect right. for Gillies. He wrote That's a sketch show. He wrote a sketch show, and so it was a debacle. And I remember no. Stephen Sewell getting into a fist fight with a crew member at the rap party. It was the only time I've seen a, a fist fight in real life. How did you get from New Zealand to Australia? Did you feel that just as John Clark had left to pursue comedy, you had to, to cross over as well? I was working uh, at the sister station of, uh, well, it was called FM 104 in Brisbane, but it's now called Triple M. So I was working at the sister station in Hamilton, New Zealand, and then I got uh, transferred because their copywriter had disappeared and, uh, yeah, was never seen again. And so they said, if you've got anyone over there, we can mm. ship over. So that's how I came over. What is a, what is, what is a, uh, a radio copywriter do in that time? Uh, well, I, I actually um, – I, I was – I think I wrote a story about this in a book I did, uh, and the story was called Thinking About Carpet, which sums up what my job was, which was like – because I had to write 120 30-second radio ads a week. So you'd come up with like six good ones, and then the rest would be Thinking About Carpet. <laughs> <laughs> or when 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 you ran out of thinking about you'd uh, the other one was uh, there's never been a better time. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, yeah. is so, that where your interest in low rent ads came from? I remember. Oh yeah, um, I used to do them. in the late mm. show days and everything. <laughs> People like stacks of slacks came across your radar. And- oh yeah, I'm still obsessed with <laughs> terrible retail ads and people doing their own commercials. It's it's re- less and less of it nowadays. But- you don't hear it much, do you? I mean, no. still. It's a bit of Frank Walker from National Tiles we're still here. Hello. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was uh, recently on the – I work on a rival network and uh, I got his hello and I cut it into a lot of songs into, <laughs> you know, hello, I love you, that one, and Beatles, hello, all the obvious ones, Lionel <laughs> Richie. And we were playing it on air and suddenly – Three sales guys appeared through the glass just going, no, 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 no. And, and I was told, do not play that again because Frank does not like people taking the piss out of his voice. Like that is the cardinal sin in FM radio. Uh, of course, he's mucking with the ads. Because we always wanted to sneak our fake ads into the actual ad breaks and were never allowed. Oh. Now, speaking of, of FM radio, I mean, you and your friends from the D-Gen, as I understand it, ruined FM breakfast radio forever by making it funny. Um, How did you come to work with those guys in the first place? Well, I was uh, unemployed in Brisbane, being the New Zealand cliche, and I'd written away to the D generation because I'd read an article about them in the TV week. It's as simple as that. Oh, wow. 
And they didn't open my envelope for five months until after the show had been made and gone to air. So I didn't get that job. But I got somehow got a job as a researcher on the Gillies program where I was man in bad suit. After that, I worked on rubbery figures. Would you remember that? It was kind of like a puppet, yeah. sort of an Australian spitting image kind of show. Did you operate a puppet physi- I was. physically? Well, I was. Myself and Mary Ann Fay, oh. uh, who was wow. Kylie Mole, we were the puppeteers, mm. and I was also a sound effects editor. And, and I did the voices that Paul Jennings couldn't do because Paul Jennings, the voice oh. guy, did all the characters, but he couldn't do Sir Joe Bjorki Peterson, so I got to play Sir Joe. You got to play Sir Joe. Yeah. Do people remember Sir Joe Bjorki Peterson? Oh, if you haven't looked him up, I mean, he, he really, all the techniques we use at the AFP were developed by him. He's a hero to us. Mm. He was amazing. He would just say things like... Um, he was always saying things like, you're all the same, you different people. It was just like everything he said was like a, an accidental joke. Well, Peter Dutton, our boss, have, hasn't quite achieved that kind of cult figure status yet. Any tips no. on how he can jow it up a bit? He already is a Queenslander who's an ex-cop, so he's sort of in the right, right ballpark already. I think he's just got to embrace the potato jokes and just like, if he was to show oh. up for work in like a giant sort of tinfoil... <laughs> Sort of suit <laughs> yeah, with yeah. like sour cream on mm, his head and, and just, some chives. Just because I remember years ago we said um, that we would give Joe Hockey a thousand dollars if he just turned up for work one day in the Fred Flintstone costume <laughs> right? and, and not refer to it, just like appear in Parliament all great. day and never refer to it, and and he wouldn't bite. And I think Darton's just got to go with the spud gear. So could we at the department maybe release a range of Christmas toys like a Mr. Potato Head, but it's Peter Dutton? Absolutely. It's just, just no <laughs> yeah. no Mr. Potato Head accoutrements at all. It's just a, 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 a life-size accurate model of Peter Dutton. Of him to hang on the tree. That's right. <laughs> I think he's just got to go with it. Can we have a word, actually, Mr. Hanson? <clears throat> oh, let's step out oh, and have a word. I'll we'll you. be back. Can we action that, do you think? Can you get approval in the, in the departmental budget? The question is logistics, isn't it, Dom? We, we would have to manufacture how many? 20, 30 million Peter Duttons? One per oh. Australian, I think. I and mean, and do, we, do we have that many potatoes to make them out of? Is I my think question. that could be absolutely fine. And ship some to the kids in Nauru, so we never do anything for them, then we could do that for them. Oh, they could have a little Christmas Dutton. Cheer <laughs> Christmas Dutton, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very good, very good. Oh, well, let's go back in. What, what, do you, what do you make of this fellow? Well... Look, um, he, he seems to be a, a you know, classic foreign subversive to, to me who's come into the country very recently, I might add, like only about 30 years ago, and who knows what, who's, who knows what sort of brainwashing he's inflicting on people. Are we still deporting New Zealanders as soon as they commit one tiny crime, even if they've yeah. been here for decades? We're still doing bloody that? Bloody oath, bloody oath. All right, we should hold that above his head, shouldn't we? He might be up for deportation with it, yeah. Except All for right. the Peter Dutton idea, that was, that was a good one. Yeah, points for that one. All right, so Tony Martin, um, you, you've worked with the DGN on the second series. How did you uh, and your your associates get entrusted with the shining jewel uh, of Eon FM Breakfast? Oh, wow, you remember Eon FM? That's amazing. Uh, the, well, it was um, before I even joined. Tom, Rob, and Santo were doing like ten sketches a week for something called the John Peters Breakfast Show, and then. Mm. 
when that f- uh, when the second series of the TV show finished, they said Lee Simon, in fact, former host of Night Moves, yeah, said we want you guys to come in full time, but Rob was going back to uh, medical school to be a doctor for two years, or as the TV week referred to him, the medico of mirth. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I was brought in to sort of uh, sub for Rob Sitch, and then we did that for like five years. But it was very, wow. it was a very strange show because I can't remember what I used to do on that show. I was the fat man. That's right. I was called the fat you man. You were called the fat man. Yeah. So how did that come about? Well, we just wanted – because it was in a – a period where American radio shows were always like uh, Steve-O and the Bear. They always had a name like that. So mm. uh, Tom and I decided we would be Tommy G and the Fat Man, uh, just as a joke. And then, it, you know, you say something like that and then you're stuck with it for five years. It's five years of people yelling, Fat Man, at me from moving cars. And I was quite thin at the time, so I'd always have to explain what was going on there. It was a very strange insult to someone who didn't listen to the show to just see <laughs> the fat man, like the thinnest man in town. Very odd. And uh, I, I, I remember hearing some stories from these days and it, it was sort of music driven at the time, wasn't it, when you guys started? Yeah, it was, um, well, it was the FM era, you know. It was like Steely Dan and things that sounded amazing in stereo. People were still dazzled by the novelty of stereo in the mid-'80s. Yeah. So, we were. Yeah, we, and we just played fewer and fewer songs and more and more stupid sketches. And we were just obsessed with sketches. Like we had eight sketches per show. Oh, my gosh. So, <clears throat> in, across how many hours? It, it was, was originally four. We, that was in oh, the days when breakfast show. went till ten. Show, yeah, hours. and then it was cut to three. And, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so yeah. it was a lot. But it was very strange for, for the middle – like it was on for five years and for the middle couple of years, we didn't even have a proper announcer. So it was just, ah. it was just comedy characters were the whole, I mean, imagine that we're now a show. breakfast show where there's not a single real person. In the yeah. show. It's, <laughs> it's very unthinkable strange. now, isn't it? Cause yeah. it, I mean, how, how did you be relatable? Well, it, we weren't, no. we were totally unrelatable until Jane <laughs> Kennedy joined the cast. And then she was like the real person in the middle of this. Oh. Sort of circus. Mm. That was the key to it becoming popular. As long as there was mm. one real person in the middle of it. And so five years of that, and how did you get the ABC to trust you with a live show? Because, you know, in our chaser days, before we found the true path, we never could get anything live up. Well, I think that was because the late show was actually piloted at Channel 9 in 1990. Oh, uh, Ooh, we did a- five pilots, and Kerry Packer didn't like it. So we got the arse from there. And then we shopped it around, and then the ABC agreed to make it. Um, but then the Gulf War happened. So we were told, we're going to make it, but not for another two years. So we had two years, because all of the money from the comedy department was diverted to the Middle East. And, was it? Yeah. The comedy to, money went to the Gulf War? Yeah, to cover, to co- you know, because there was constant round-the-clock coverage. Wow. But that, what was great was it gave us two years to prepare for it. So uh, Mick Malloy, because the worst part about the Channel 9 pilots was none of us were any good at playing ourselves. So mm, the ho- mm. the sketches were good, but the hosting was really shithouse. Mm. So over that two years, Mick Malloy and myself went off and became stand-up comedians. So that meant we were finally, you know, good at playing ourselves on television. If So if Saddam Hussein hadn't 
invaded Kuwait, probably the Late Show wouldn't have happened. Hang on a sec. Mick Malloy, uh, who, of course, plays himself brilliantly yes, these days. he does. Um, what was he like originally before he developed the Mick Malloy character? He was Michael Malloy. If you oh, look at all goodness. of his early... Mm. He was like a writer on the comedy company, and mm. uh, I remember him writing for the Jerry Connolly show, and he was always Michael Malloy. And then okay. he deve- and then he joined our radio show, <clears throat> and he was he sort of wasn't making much impression till he invented this character called Mick Malloy, who did a segment called Mick Serve, mm. where he would just go mental and just have like a rant about something, and that became the most popular thing on our breakfast show. Yeah. So, and we always say the key to the Late Show was that we'd done that radio show for five years. So the two years of the Late Show were like. Series six and seven for us, if you like. So yeah. all of all of the dynamics of that show had been developed on radio. When you said you you did stand up as preparation too for the late show, yeah. I mean, was that a deliberate thing? Did you decide, oh, I need to learn how to be myself? Well, on we, stage of the group, Mick and myself were obsessed with stand up, <clears throat> and we really wanted to do stand up. We were the only people who ever did it. Mm. But the when we watched those Channel 9 pilots back, it was so bad, the hosting. Like, we were so stilted playing ourselves. We just, mm. I remember thinking, we've got to develop playing ourselves skills. Gosh, so, imagine, yeah. imagine, Andrew, how good the chases were and everything could have been with a bit of that sort of experience. I know. But I, I can so relate to this because I hate playing myself. I'm never myself. If I stand up and pretend to be me, I'm, not, I'm not me. But you guys, I have to say, you guys in your later shows, like the hamster wheel. Oh, I mean, we got used to it. You got good at sort of taking the piss out of each other, which was something mm. you'd not really mm. done a lot of back in the war on everything. No, we were, ne- we were never character. We were never sort of no, the show was about other things other than ourselves. Yeah. And it always was, I think. But it's a good flavour to introduce, so, don't you think? I think, yeah, but the audience, well, yeah, you've got to get the audience to know you a bit first before, yeah. before they care. So you, it seems like you had yeah. heaps of creative control on that show. Is there anything that they wouldn't let you do in the uh, late show? Well, the problem with, the thing is it had to be an hour a week. And so... Nothing was ever rejected. Like I remember we had friends who wrote on the comedy company and fast forward and they had a system there where the writers were paid per 30 seconds. Oh. So there was real competition among the writers and like fast forward had like 30 writers. We had seven, it was just the seven of, of us who were doing the show. So you'd get to like Thursday night and you'd be looking at the whiteboard and you go, there's only 45 minutes there. And it was an hour show that usually blew out to like 70 minutes. So Mm. nothing was ever rejected. It was just like if you had an idea, that was in the show. I I can't recall any. In terms of like being censored, uh, I remember I wrote something which was, uh, it was Martin Scorsese directing an episode of To the Manor Born with <laughs> Penelope Keith, and that had too, bit, too much swearing in it. But, <laughs> oh, what a shame. <laughs> that's right. Oh. I, I, here's something I do remember, is that we were on at 10 o'clock at night and we weren't allowed to say the F word. And But then there was a British show called Sean's Show. Do you remember oh, yeah, this? Sean's Show. Yeah, Sean Hughes. Sean mm-hmm. Hughes. And he was on Monday nights at 930 and he was saying, F this, F that. And I remember us going to the executive producer saying, why is he allowed to swear? And they go, um, we look upon, and this is what they said, we look upon overseas swearing differently. <laughs> so if it was overseas swearing, it was fine. But well, not- the British, it's proper. Exactly. It's proper swearing. That's right. Well, as a so New Zealander, you could have argued the toss, couldn't you? 
<laughs> well, that's right. We love a swear in New Zealand. <laughs> what do you think of swearing? In everybody always gets head up about swearing. I love and- swe- I've always found swearing funny. Mm. So, I mean, I've got relatives who go, um, you must have heard this before. If you're if you're a proper comedian, you don't need to use those words. Yeah, or if you're intelligent, they say. Yeah, sometimes. but I mean, just like all words. Why not just have access to all words, like how people speak in real life, I say. And now you seem to be able to get away with anything, don't you? I mean, don't you think it, mm. I reckon everything changed. It, I think it was around 89, 90 when Bob Hawke said bullshit on the news. Do you remember that? It was like uh, a huge, it was like a bomb going off. Mm. Someone asked him a question, he goes, ah, it's bullshit. And then like the next day you heard people on breakfast shows saying bullshit. And up till that time. Like you gave us permission. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> From the top. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It was an executive decision to now bullshit is the go. And what I find now is I'm on Nova Breakfast and occasionally a caller will say the F word and no one minds. Oh, really? Oh, really? It's like, you know what it is? It's that thing where if the caller says it, I think a listener goes, well, how could they have stopped that? Oh, oh yeah. So if, the host, oh, yeah. Mm. if the host says it, it's different. Oh, yeah. I mean, and especially on ABC. I, I heard this bit of ABC um, Virginia Trioli the other oh, yes. day. Oh, yes. Is she swearing now? <laughs> she, she didn't swear, but she played this clip from a drama series, and unbeknownst to anyone, it, had, it was full of swearing, and right. I hadn't checked it. Right. And the next, I swear, the next two hours of that show were just people ringing up, Complaining. complaining. I don't like swearing. I really don't. And I, I turned the radio off. I came back an hour later. Yes, were, I really don't like swearing. <laughs> um, you were probably swearing, Andrew, at the time. I was. It went all dark. I can't believe how much content they got out of just people not liking swearing. <laughs> I just, I remember on Get This, so this is like 2007, Bob Franklin uh, came. Is this, am I allowed to swear on this or will you beep it? Oh. No, go for it. We'll just have okay, to say so, it's explicit. So Bob Franklin came on at like midday on Triple M and we had been axed, get this, had been axed, and we were doing that thing of they we'd been axed but we were on for another six weeks. Oh, wow. So we're, so we're being really careful not to slag the network because they're just waiting for us to say something <laughs> so they can pull us off air. But Bob Franklin felt no such restrictions and he came in and, and uh, someone else on the show said, so why is the show been axed? And Bob Franklin goes... Because uh, the management here are a pack of cunts. Oh, oh. And that went to air and there was not a single complaint. Not even from management <laughs> from themselves. Your listeners were probably on board because you, you had um, such devoted listeners to get this. That's right. We had a protest on the final, the day of the final show. We had 400 people marching up St Gilda Road with a banner. Was, yeah, and that was a real protest too, not yeah, not not like the the staged ones no. that some of those breakfast shows on TV have had. Oh right, is that what they're doing? Uh, yeah, at least one of them oh, staged we're all, we're their all, own protest. Where the signs have clearly all been <laughs> like printed by the same person <laughs> in the same font. Can I just have a word, actually, Mr. Hanson? Just have yeah. oh, oh, sure, Dommy. Oh, yes. No. Um, this gentleman troubles me. Uh, he's clearly mm. able to manipulate public opinion. I mean, four hundred yeah. subversives. Picketing mm. Triple M in Melbourne. I mean, that could go anywhere. Well, that's he's not fostering quiet Australians, is he? <laughs> no, that's noisy. That's far too noisy. We can't have that sort of thing. We're going to no. have to put some pressure on him, I think. What would you suggest? Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I, well I'd suggest asking some more insightful questions about his career dressed up in the format of an interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could work, sir. Shall we try it? <clears throat> yes. Head on in, please. 
400 people picketing radio stations. I mean, yes. it must be very awkward. I, I can only imagine if a show gets axed, I don't know, a few weeks before going off the air. I can't imagine that circumstance. <laughs> What's that like? How, how does one cope with that eventuality? Well, we just all moved on. Uh, but I remember the the listeners, the podcasts have refused to die from that show. So it's like 12 years ago, get this, but people are still discovering the podcasts that are archived somewhere online. So I'll just constantly bump into people who will just yell things at me from 2007. <laughs> they'll just go, uh, and they'll tell me where they're up to in the podcast. So they'll go, Galen's just been voted out of the Big Brother house. <laughs> oh, so it's Galen. <laughs> you've got Fat Man. You've got highly specific get this references. Yeah. Your hecklers get, are very, very uh, specific, aren't they? Uh, they are. So scholarly. I can tell how old someone is by what they yell at me from a car. <laughs> so people who were listening in the 80s will yell Fat Man. People who were listening in the uh, 90s yell barge ass at me. Oh, of course. Mm. Or something from a thing I did, Tim and Full, which mm, was on. Mm. And then people from the uh, noughties yell, this is dizzy stuff, which was right. a line of Rex Hunts that we played over and over. <laughs> and then some people who remember me from Kath and Kim will yell, pash rash at me. Oh, yes. And now because yes. of Sizzletown, people yell, what's it going to be at me, which is something yes. someone says on my podcast. Let's, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Let's get on to Sizzletown. Town because I mean, oh, yeah. what an, a highly original idea to have talk back on podcasts. Has that yes. proven influential? Are you seeing across the podcasting medium other people having talk back? Not really. And it's it's such a strange show in that I play all the callers as well. So mm. it's way too much trouble to go to for most people because we will just <laughs> sit there moving breaths around to make it sound like I'm genuinely talking to myself. Which and it the does. Last, well, the last episode of, well, we're having a hiatus, and the last one we did, I played 34 people. Well, how, <laughs> how long is the edit, Tony? I've, I've seen so a video, long. I've seen a video you posted, I think, of, of, of an edit session well, where you, you wore a number of different hats. Well, I record all the calls and the host bits at my place, and that takes usually three nights. Oh, gosh. And then I take it to Matt Dower, and it's usually two five-hour edit sessions just to edit it. Mm. And then he then spends three or four nights mixing it all and making it sound like like I'm on a flying fox being attacked by birds and things like that. And Have we're you... obsessed with stereo, you know, having things go round and round in your head if you're listening to it on headphones. So Sizzletown's on hiatus for now. Have you yes. thought about another series where all the callers are from the AFP and vo Border Force just giving <laughs> help, help, helpful tips about how to not be subversive and... Be quite Australian. I'll give that a crack, sure. That could work. Peter Dutton, <laughs> would he be personally involved? I think he would call in. If you're willing to have the real minister, just yeah. not you play. We couldn't let you play the minister. That would that would be very inappropriate. Oh, no, I'd, I'd be happy to have Peter Dutton be a regular character. That'd be great. <laughs> I think what he'd enjoy voice, that. <laughs> how does he sound? I can't get well, his voice in my head. Program, on our program. Oh, sorry. That's my... Uh, my alarm's gone off. I have to um, move my car because I'm only in a one hour. Is that oh, going to affect the th podcast? Th that always happens in this interrogation cell. We, we have very poor parking <laughs> at this uh, facility. We'll have to escort you down in the handcuffs. You don't. My people will just yell barge ass at you. They won't notice the handcuffs. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm used to that. So is it all right if I go and be escorted well, yes, down by one of your officers move the car and then come back and resume the interrogation? Is that acceptable practice? I think that's, we have to do that. It's the only way we can get guests on this podcast. <laughs>
Really sorry. Absolutely. It's just one hour's around here. Yeah. Why don't I even give you a swipe? Okay. Um, this is not normal practice, but here you go. Thank you. So I'll, that'll, I'll, that'll let you back in the building. I'll, I'll take the handcuffs off. I'll be straight back. Uh, welcome back. Has your car been impounded? <sighs> yeah, I've just moved one. It's a foolish charade, really, isn't it? I've literally moved one space along. Do you feel nervous when you move only one space? I, yeah. I, I worry that they're not going to realise. Yeah, because is it chalk? Is it, well, is it, is is it, it chalk are we beyond anymore? chalk now not or is anymore. it electronic? Take, I've seen them. They take photos. So technically, are you allowed to move one space up or are you still within the one hour limit? I don't know, but I'll tell you, well, we'll get Minister Dutton onto it if you can't yeah, be impounded. Yeah, He's sure. influential with these people. So look, we were talking about podcasts and, and, uh, and Sizzletown and um, I'm just wondering, we've been getting a lot of, of one star reviews uh, for oh. our podcast <laughs> oh, and in our customer service mm. uh, yeah. surveys. In fact, at the ABC, we got zero stars from some of the people after the raid. Um, you've been reviewing movies for 40 years That's true. and you've got a lot of one stars. Can you tell us about some of the one stars? Because we need to understand what this means. Uh, well, what it is, is I've been keeping a file since January 1980. So it is literally 40 years of every film I see. And I just write down who directed it, how many stars. And I've never looked back at it. So on the podcast, I've just been going one year at a time. And it's amazing how many, like... <laughs> the one star films, they're films you wouldn't even remember, like Sharky's Machine with Burt Reynolds. That was a one star. That sounds a lot Or Cannonball Run was only oh. one star, amazingly. That was only one. Yeah, because I think I remember um, being not impressed by the, the uh, few number of car chase. You know, <laughs> there were very few car studs in Cannonball Run. You, you think it would be nothing I, but. Well, it was but just I think one big car chase. What you're remembering is Smokey and the Bandit. That oh. was all. That was full of car studs. How many stars? One star. <laughs> oh, you're a harsh reviewer. What, what's the most stars you've ever handed out? Oh, but I was giving things like King of Comedy, I gave five stars. Oh, I do. It that is movie. amazing how angry people get with the 19 year old version of me who's given like Blade Runner three stars. And people are contacting me on Twitter. Why is Blade Runner only three? That should be at least four. Has your whole okay. career, Tony, been leading up to this? Are you, are you a frustrated film critic? I, I, it weirdly has. I just thought I'll do five minutes of it on the unplugged version of the podcast. and But then I realised it even only when there's 26 films in a year, that takes me 20 minutes to read out, that is becoming more popular than the proper Sizzletown. <laughs> this was just meant to be a fill-in. And now we're looking at the numbers, and the numbers for Unplugged are going up and overtaking. So people are finding this incredibly boring idea of me just going through every film I saw in one year, they're finding it quite compelling, weirdly. I love the devotion, though, for 40 years of, of just star ratings. It's just like, you know when you start something and you get so far in, you're going, well, now I have to do this till the end of time. <laughs> and it is kind of <laughs> interesting because like, I've never, I've tried to, have you ever tried to keep a diary? Like you enter into it with sort of commitment and then two weeks in you're not doing it anymore. But by just ha keeping a, a list of every film, I find I can remember where I saw that film, who I saw it with, what was going on at the time. It's quite an interesting, mm. you know, sort of tube back into the past. And, and I mean, very sparking of debates. I mean, Conan the Barbarian, three stars. That seems quite generous of the young Tony Martin. <laughs> 
I because what I do is I I read out the thing and then I try and um, go what does that remind me of and I can't remember anything about Conan the Barbarian I think uh, James L Jones gets uh, beheaded at the end of it that's all I remember but I do remember doing a sketch on the Degeneration called Conan the Librarian <laughs> and then Weird Al Yankovic did it on his movie UHF and then Alexi Sale did it on his show Stuff oh. and we're going wow we all ran for that one yeah <laughs> we all thought we'd yeah. come up with that one. It, it often happens, doesn't it? The comedians just think of the exact same idea. Yeah, well, that's pretty odd. I mean, it rhymes. So once it rhymes, it's Vegetarian. Kind of I mean, there's so many other things. That librarian. Breatharian. That's I mean, very hard to resist. Could have been, you know. <laughs> but if you have had that, I've often done something where and then you'll find out someone else did it and you go, oh, no. Mm. But I always go, if you, isn't the fact that you did it the fact the giveaway that you didn't know. Yeah, of course. Because oh. because you're going, well, everyone's you're going to be sprung, aren't you? Well, unless you're a plagiarist. <laughs> you know, unless you yeah, unless you did know. It was back in the old before YouTube. There was like mm. I remember seeing Benny Hill towards remember how there was this biography came out about Benny Hill and and if you looked on the credits of the Benny Hill show, he was the only writer yeah, of the show. Stunning God. And but then they revealed in his biography that what he would do is he would pop over to Europe and just sit in hotel rooms writing down jokes from European sketch comedy shows and oh. then do them on his own show. <laughs> But towards the end, like the people will forget the the really sad final few years of the Betty Hill show. He'd be doing like Steve Martin jokes and Stephen Wright jokes. Oh God, was he shameless? Was he? Yeah. yeah I mean, who would have thought Benny Hill could get any sadder than the actual original? <laughs> um, but speaking oh. of podcasts, I mean, you've you so you did uh, Sizzle Town. We had to do this incredibly laborious editing. You also yes. did one called Child Proof that had a full live cast and was performed. Yes. And so are you, are you happy to have finally hit upon a simple podcast idea of doing your um, your reviews? Well, it, I feel You feel a bit guilty. It's like, oh, sh- this isn't enough work. And then that's the popular one. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. What about the one where I spent yeah. 10 hours trying to make it sound like there was a helicopter crash in the left speaker in the distance? Nah, no interest. Do you in find that. that maddening in comedy? I mean, it's so yes. often the case that, that, that something with no work in it is hugely popular. That's right. <laughs> That's and these true. things people have slaved over, That's obscure true. and niche. I remember reading about SCTV, which is a great Canadian show, and because it was two minutes longer in Canada than it was in America, they had to come up with something for those two minutes. So they just came up with these characters called Doug and Bob McKenzie. I've heard of Moranis this. Yeah, and Dave yeah, yeah. Thomas. Yeah. And it was like a piss take of Canadian stereotypes. And that became the most popular thing in the show, and then they did a movie of just those characters. <laughs> and I feel like I've had that happen a few times, where mm. things you just do as a stir end up being the things people like. Well, yeah. but back in the days of, of Martin Malloy doing drive radio, um, there are all these stories yes. about how hard you used to work. Oh, yes. Do you wish you'd thought of just rocking up and talking about relatable stuff <laughs> and just doing, just doing a news story and going, hey, give us a call if this has happened to you? I just, we just didn't because the show took up all our time. Nothing ever happened to us that was relatable. Like, <laughs> I just all I did was go to the station, do the show, drive home, write sketches, drive back to the station, and unless something happened between the station and home, I was never having any relatable things happen to me. I do remember one funny thing that happened. Oh no, this was on Get This on the drive between my house and the station. There was a chicken shop. <laughs> like a roast chicken rotisserie place called the Chicken Machine, 
And I used to go on and on about how disturbing that was for a neighbour. It was like something David Cronenberg would invent, the chicken machine. And so one day I'm driving home and there's a bloke up there crossing out the chicken machine and changing it to the chicken specialist. And I'm going, chicken specialist is still kind of weird. It's too. no better. And then, and then I think they changed it a third time to something else. But then I put it out, you could still see the word specialist underneath. They hadn't painted it. So that was that's my idea of relatable comedy. Here's something that happened to me. And Well, you probably made them change the name, did you? Your giant oh, influence back in the day. That's right. So I just, because I don't have any kids and I never go on holiday, I just don't mm. have the normal store of, you know, you know, hey, girls, you know what it's like. I don't have any of those you, stories. So you it's seem like, to oh, have done okay without them. But yeah. look, finally, you see, you've given so many different um, kinds of projects to go. And look, of course, we at... Uh, the AFP and Border Force were very yes. interested in deadly kerfuffle. Oh, um, yes. Suburban terror. Uh, yes. And you've you've come up with a, a story where uh, a report of terrorism spins out of control and is misunderstood. Of course, that wouldn't happen in real life, would it? No. Well, that was entirely based by a rumour that I lived in a place called Hamilton, New Zealand in the 70s, and there was a street that had... Uh, what's called state housing. So that's like council flats, but mm. they're like sort of identical weatherboard houses. And there were 20 of them in one street, but the seventh one along was on a different angle, didn't face the front. And rumour went round our school that Egyptian people had moved in there and had had the house rotated to uh, face Mecca. So that that's true. That was, well, uh, I don't I, think it was I, true because surely if you're I living I mean, the rumour is, the rumor like, is people true. really thought this. Yeah, and then I remember going back to New Zealand 10 years later and people were still, remember when those Egyptians had their house turned to face Mecca? Because <laughs> that and, really is an extraordinary picture of the lack of, uh, of the conformity of New Zealand in those days. <laughs> imagine like the, the plumbing, imagine how complicated, yeah, and it's cost. a government-owned house. <laughs> So I just went, imagine if that oh. happened in like a suburb like Camberwell mm. and then it was, you know, the proposed, the, the paper have picked up on it and a house <laughs> rotating with un-Australian intent and people uh, protesting the proposed Islamic rotation. And I just imagined, okay, like let's start with that and have it end like a Tom Clancy novel. That was that was the, the goal with that book. But it was entirely inspired by just a real rumour. And look, there are all these different characters as bumbling anti-terrorist police and yes. cynical media figures. Those sure. aren't based on real people we could be <laughs> investigating, are they? They, they uh, possibly are. I remember a funny thing happening where I went to 2GB and I had to be interviewed by Ray Hadley, which was a very disturbing <laughs> interrogation uh, of its own. And there was a girl who was like his assistant and she was normally Alan Jones's assistant, but he was on holiday. So she was working for Ray Hadley and she was incredibly nervous. And she's standing in the corridor with a clipboard saying, look, I should tell you, Ray didn't know that this interview was going to happen. So he's, he's, he's not very happy about it. And then while she's telling me that, she looks around and there's a giant movie poster sized picture of Alan Jones on the wall and she just goes, ah! and just <laughs> recoils <laughs> from the poster. And that sort of... Horrible oh. reaction was so revealing. Wow. That was entirely the inspiration for one of the characters in <laughs> wow. in Deadly Kerfuffle. And so no, just should, little things like that. So we'll put a picture of Alan Jones in every uh, detention <laughs> cell that we have. <laughs> wow. Is there anyone you'd like to report as suspicious here and now? Have you got any, any uh, misaligned houses in your neighbourhood that we need to look into? 
Uh, we still have a video shop in our neighbourhood, so I find that suspicious. Oh, that's a front. <laughs> that's, that's one of ours, be, I'm sure. That can't be right. <laughs> there's, there's none left, are there? Are there any? I haven't seen one in 10 years. It's very well, sad. I mean, where, where do you do you live in another country? I still have I mean, three laminated video shop cards at my house. And, and just, <laughs> just keeping, just mm. maybe that one day they'll come back. <laughs> Maybe Blockbuster <laughs> will return. The way cassettes mm. have come back. You oh, never know. no one predicted that. You never know. <laughs> you never true. know. Now, Tony, in the finale of Sizzletown, you mentioned that you and, and Matt Dow, your producer, need to do yes. some more paying work. Yes. Can we hire you to make, uh, you know, AFP meet Sizzletown? Well, how would that work? So, oh, you mi- okay, so the idea would be that we set up a talkback show mm. and hope that subversives call in with their crazy ideas and then we trace the call and bang, we've got them. That, <laughs> that the would idea? work. I mean, it wouldn't work as well if all the characters were played by you, I suppose. <laughs> no, but we do more like a re- like I just do the first couple and then people go, right, okay, Let's we call, call in. in with yeah. any mad concept. I've seen a misaligned house. Yeah. Exactly. I wonder how many years we could string that out before anybody cottoned on a that if you phoned this show, you'd be disappeared. And, and people, would, you know, there's so many shows on digital now. Mm. Like there's one called Triple M Country. Like, is that really <clears> a real station? <laughs> it's a sketch. Isn't so it? I think if you just said to people, they're going, well, I can't hear it on the radio, go, it's on the digital band, dude. it's mm. way down the end. I think you could easily set up a fake talkback show. I think oh, we I think. have a deal, Tony Martin. That's amazing. Extreme Vetting with the Chaser was written and presented by Dom Knight, Charles Firth and Andrew Hansen. Produced by Alex Mitchell and audio production by Darcy Thompson. For all episodes, search Extreme Vetting Podcast. Listener.